All right, so we are going to stand and read Psalm 119. If you're able to stand, uh, stand up with me. We'll read Psalm 119. After I finish reading it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. So Psalm 119, not 119, Psalm 19. <laughs> Psalm 19. 119, I would never finish. All right, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In him, in them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. And rising, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Lord, we pray for this morning as we look into your word that you would uh, fill us with the spirit and give us um, understanding as we look into it. Help us be able to uh, understand how you communicate to us through the world and even more specific through the word. And God, I pray that we would be able to um, see Christ and rejoice in what Christ has done for us um, in this text. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At it. Uh, you can see the title is The World and the Word. Uh, and so God's talking to us about how he speaks to us through the world in verses 1 through 6. So as you notice through verses 1 through 6, he's talking about how the heavens and the skies are, are pouring forth speech. And at verse 7, there's a, there's a transition, and that's whenever he moves from the world to the word, and he starts talking about how glorious the word is and what it does. And so that's, that's the general outline that we'll go with, 1 through 6, 7 through 12. I do have a, I think that 12 through 14 or 7 through 11, 12 through 14 is kind of like my response. So we'll, we'll, that's, the, that's the general outline, but we'll, we'll go through it. Before we get in there, I want to introduce one little concept with you. Um, Systematic Theology is just a book written by a guy named Wayne, Wayne Grudem. Uh, and in it, he kind of outlines doctrines for us. Um, well, no love, Andres. No love. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> Andres is over here. You want to go over there with him? Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. All right. So anyway. He wrote this book called Systematic Theology, and in it, uh, there's a specific part where he talks about the doctrine of the Word, uh, where he just talks about explaining what, what the Bible has to say about the Bible, um, and, so, and how God speaks to us. Well, in that little section, he talks about how God speaks, and so he says, God mainly speaks 
to us in two ways, general revelation and special revelation. So general revelation is basically how you can see God when you walk outside and you look around. So this is how he says, the knowledge of God's existence and his character and his moral law that come through creation to, through all, to all humanity. So by looking at creation, um, God's given us as humans his creation to look at. And when we look at it, we know that he exists. We can understand some things about his character and his moral law. Now, we can't know how to be saved, but we can know that he exists. Uh, This means that God has decided that uh, all men can know that he exists, and we can know that he exists just by looking at creation so that no one has an excuse by saying, I didn't know that God exists. And he says, you do know that I exist because I've created the world. Paul expounds a little more by saying in Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them or to everyone because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. So you can see things about God, namely his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature. They are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and all the things that have been made. So in everything that's made, you can see specifically his eternal power and his divine nature so that those who, every human, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking and their hearts were foolishly darkened. So that's, that's the end result of those that don't trust Christ. They know that there's a God because they can see it in creation. And this means that every person uh, that doesn't have a Bible knows that God exists, but they cannot know how to be saved. So they're still held guilty because they know that God, that God exists. Um, that's general revelation that they can know there's a God. Now, um, the, the great news is he didn't stop at general revelation and just condemn us all and not give us any means by salvation. So he also had, that's general revelation, but there's also something called special revelation, and that is the words of the Bible. So special revelation doesn't just tell us that he exists, it tells us even more about him, but more importantly, it tells us how man can be saved, because general revelation lets us know there's a God, and lets us know that we need, we need to know him, and special revelation actually tells us how we can know him. So special revelation, the words of the God in the Bible, but also include, in the technical sense of special revelation, it's not just the Bible. There are some other things that can fall under special revelation, like when Jesus was alive and he was walking on earth, God himself, he said, that's special revelation because it was said by the word or said by God himself. So Jesus's words. But you can also put uh, some of the words of the prophets when they would say, thus saith the Lord and then say it. Those things are special revelation, even though they were written. And then uh, the apostles' words um, as they were written down to us, etc. So, uh, but generally you would say these are the words of the Bible. For us today, since all those people are dead, um, except for Jesus, uh, we have we have the words of the Bible. So special revelation, you would say, is, is the Bible. And it's distinguished from general revelation because general revelation is given to everybody. Special revelation is not. Not everybody has the Bible. And when we say revelation, we don't mean the end of the last book in the Bible, right? We mean how specifically God has revealed himself. So um, that's, that's the means by which this, this, this psalm is outlined. One through six is general revelation. 7 through 11 is special revelation, and he's going to talk about what those things look like. So uh, Psalm 19 is, is a, well, I was mentioning Psalm 119. Psalm 19 is, is a little microcosm of 119. So if you want to read even longer version about uh, how great the Lord's word is, you can go to 119. So, uh, so verses 1 through 6 is this. So the word in the world, you can put up number one for us. If we're going to look at this, uh, is God reveals himself clearly through the world. God reveals himself clearly through the world. General revelation. Um, 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to all the world. In and up. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is the first section where God reveals himself through the world. And there is no place on the planet where God is not continually revealing or shouting the, the Nature and creation is not continually shouting the greatness of God. So the purpose of creation, the reason why we have creation around us, is because it wants to shout to us the glory of God. And this, this way that God is revealing himself is limited in a sense. It doesn't save, but it does condemn. But it does make us know that, let, let us know that there's a creator and that we're sinners. It just doesn't tell us how to be saved. Obviously, that's the second half of the psalm. So... Uh, as we're looking through verses 1 through 6, I want to make five observations on the way God reveals himself through the world. Five observations on the way God reveals himself through the world. Observation number one, the heavens and the sky are the specific focus. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now certainly all creation speaks, but here David is focusing in on the heavens and the skies. And everything that God makes is speaking to us. And therefore, everything that God uh, made is ministering to us in a way if we'll listen. If we'll listen. And it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims. So we have these two verbs, declare and proclaim, which are actually both participles, meaning that they are continually pouring forth speech. It's not just once, but the skies and the heavens are continually preaching to us at all times. They're continually preaching to us. And they're telling us specifically that God is glorious. And so the word glory here, uh, when it says the heavens declare the glory of God, it has to do with weight. And it's saying that the heavens and skies are giving evidence and outwardly displaying that these things are massively important because the person that made them is infinitely important. And so the heavens are telling us how weighty and how impressive God is. They're speaking of the works of his hands. When we see his handiwork, they're proclaiming his handiwork, uh, indicating that he has power and the ability to also care and also has the ability to be precise and intricate. And so they're, they're screaming towards us his glory. The heavens and the skies, though, are the, the specific focus. Now you can go forward and it says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge, which means uh, the heavens and the skies are pouring forth speech. They're declaring, they're proclaiming, but they're pouring forth speech. Day to day they're doing this. It says day to day and night to night, which means nature is always continually or creation is always continually speaking to us. And the Hebrew word for pouring forth speech is like gushing or spewing out. God is uh, not holding back when it comes to making sure we can see and understand his glory in all creation. Uh, he speaks in a way that we can understand and see and understand his glory better. The skies are bursting to tell of their maker and they're uh, continually putting out the testimony of his goodness and his, glorious, and, and his glory. So they're pouring forth speech. You have to go through this fast because I do have a long sermon this time compared to last week. So um, the next one uh, is the point, observation three is they're, they're speaking 
without actually speaking. What? All right, here's what we mean. So there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. They're speaking without actually speaking. And then it says after this, their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, the sky, you know, besides thunder, if you just look at it, right, it's not actually talking out loud. It's not audible. So it's speaking It's just speaking inaudibly. It's speaking without speaking, which is odd. God's communicating, but without words. He's speaking to us visually, not verbally. He's giving us colors and hues and contrasts and beauty and sunsets and sunrises and mountainscapes. He's giving all these things, and these things don't actually speak audibly, but they still speak volumes. Do you ever wonder why when you see a sunset, you have to stop and stare at it? You're like, get your camera out. I got to take this picture. Oh, it never looks right on the phone. You just can't see it like I see it right now. Like, why do we do that? There's something inside of us realizing, this is, this is, this is amazing. Who could, who could make this? God has wired us that we need to be able to be in awe of sunsets. Um, so God's speaking to us with colors and hues and contrasts and winds and sunrises and mountainscapes. And they're speaking volumes even though it's not audibly. God is communicating to us from his heart and mind to our heart and mind. And the point is that he's pouring forth communication constantly through the skies and he's telling us and proclaiming to us and writing lines in the skies to us declaring, everyone stop and listen and look at this glorious um, thing that I've made because it's pointing to him who is even more infinitely glorious. And so he's speaking without speaking. And so the fourth observation is the message is that the sky are speaking to us about God. That, that's really all one through six. I didn't put something there. But what they're wanting to point us to is that it's telling us about God. The glory of God and his handiwork there in verse one. Uh, the message of the sky is telling us about the glory of God and his handiwork. God is wanting us to look at creation and say, this was made by someone and this person that made it is great. And so every time we look at the skies, every time we look at the heavens above us, um, we're supposed to wonder in our minds, uh, wow, God is great. They're, as you look at the sky, it's beckoning you to look at the sky and say, glory to God. Amazing. It's beckoning you to actually start screaming out glory to him at the top of your lungs. So they are about God and they're wanting to invoke within you a feeling of adoration and worship. Now, even more so, look at this. So we've, we've done... Uh, verses 1 through 4 a lot, mostly. But we have this last little part of 4. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom. So uh, when you think about this setting a tent for the sun, the sun rises. So David, you know, he's not a weatherman, right? And he's certainly not a scientist. He just knows when he gets up, the sun's right here, and it goes all the way across the sky by the end of the day, and it sets there. And it just, it, that's what it does. It's like a little tent that it's, following a little line all the way across. And he says, the sun comes out of God. It says, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. A bridegroom leaving his chamber, it's the best day of his life. And he's, he's walking out because he is excited about that particular day or the strong man running its course with joy. So it's, it's coming out, the sun's coming out with absolute joy. It's the best day of his life until it's over. And then it's the next best day of his life because he gets to every day scream to all of us about the glory of God. This is the point that he's trying to say. And it's meant for our joy. So 
observation number five. The glory of God is meant for your joy. The glory of God is meant for your joy. Um, so we have the little t- sample of the mute testimony of the son. And it's helping us see uh, as the bridegroom would get up and go to his wedding day excited or the runner would get up to run with joy. Uh, it's, it's the beginning of a whole new kind of joy. And the, the, the creation is wanting us to see uh, the splendor and glory of, of God, which leads us to our joy. It's rising is from the end of the heavens. It's circuit to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. So it goes all the way across. The sun never misses anything. And the whole point is that it's pointing that, um, to his glory and his glory should give us infinite joy. His glory should give us infinite joy. It's, it's meant for our joy. That's the first thing, that we can see God in the world. General revelation has been given to us. Uh, and so every man can understand something about God just by looking at creation. Now, there's a, there's a transition in Psalm, Psalm uh, 19 to verse 7 where it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. So he's switching from general revelation to special revelation. So point number two, uh, God reveals himself and salvation clearly through his word. So I've added the salvation and I've changed world to word because this is what he's doing. And we can know God uh, through his word, but we can also know how to be saved. The world helps us understand that we need to be saved and now we can understand how to be. So there are no words when God speaks in creation in verses one through six. There are no audible actual words in verses one through six. It's just looking at creation. But there are words when he speaks in scripture, written down words. And just, my seminary professor always pointed this out, but if you just kind of take a little step back and think of the amazing gift of language, that God created language. <laughs> we don't just grunt at each other and try to figure out what we're saying, right? He's actually created language. Now, there's a bunch of them, but words where we can be a lot more precise with each other and actually tell each other what we're thinking about and, and try to put words around our feelings and our emotions and our thoughts. That's an amazing gift that he's given to us. And so he's created language and he's created words so that we can know the same about him. He's want, he wants us to, he doesn't tell us everything, but he certainly tells us everything we need to know. And that's an amazing gift that he actually gave us language. And so there's a little pattern that you'll see here in verse seven uh, that we'll follow. You can see it. He, t- he sees He tells us what we see in the word, and then he tells us the effect of it. For example, what we see in the word is the law of the Lord is perfect. The effect of it is that it's reviving the soul. That's the pattern. So he's going to do that five times here and tell us about the character of his word. So we'll see those things regarding the character of his word. So number one, 7a, the law of the Lord is perfect. And the effect of that is that when you have the law of the Lord, it's reviving the soul. So, you know, characteristic number one of his word, the scriptures are perfect, reviving one's soul. The scriptures are perfect, reviving one's soul. Uh, this means that the word is sufficient. Sufficient means it's what you need. God is not creating the Bible and then also in need of supplementary things to go with it to revive your soul. It's not the Bible plus just some other stuff like the Bible plus my favorite and my soul's revived. You don't listen to Chris Tomlin or your CDs anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, like, then my soul's revived if I can listen to Shane and Shane while I read my Bible. The, the Bible's sufficient in and of itself. It's all we need. We don't need it plus. That's the way it's designed. 
It's totally sufficient. The scriptures, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's, of course, the law is referring to the Torah, which is referring to the, the total doctrine and teaching and instruction. And so uh, it's all we need, more than any other supplement or anything. I'm not saying supplements are bad. I love Shane and Shane like you and Chris Tomlin or whatever. But those things, if I never had them, I would be totally fine because the Bible's all that I need. Um, and so it's literally reviving our soul. This is when it says reviving your soul, it says restoring one's life. It's restoring one's life. It's totally sufficient for our soul. As a matter of fact, it says, if you go down to in verse 10, more to be desired than gold, this means that if you had a choice between the word of God and infinite wealth, gold, and riches, you would, you would choose the word of God. You would want to choose the word of God. John Piper says, uh, not picking the word of God over anything else, or whenever you pick something else over the word of God, he says, it's like a child picking the penny over the dime because it's bigger. So in the morning when we wake up and we pull out our phone and we don't go to the, the Bible app and we go to our email app, just think, I'm a child picking the penny over the dime because it's bigger. I should pick the word of God before I, anything else in my life in the morning. Now, don't be a legalist, but you get the point, right? You get the point. Like nothing should be more important to us than the word of God. So it literally revives our soul. So more than any other thing in the world, why would we not want to have our soul revived? And it's made available to us in his word. So be in the word. It also says this, um, the next line, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So if the first one we see the scriptures are perfect, reviving one's whole soul, we can also see the second one is that the scriptures are sure, giving wisdom. The, sure, the scriptures give wisdom. They're giving wisdom to us. They're, they're relevant. When it says they're sure, it means that they're relevant. Uh, there is no more relevant book in the Bible ever or book in the world than the scriptures. They may seem antiquated to non-believers. They just don't have the Holy Spirit and don't understand it. It is the most relevant thing there is. Um, we don't have to make the scriptures relevant. They already are. And it makes wise the simple. Um, we are simple people, all of us, and it makes us wise because it's the word of God. Um, the Bible can do that for us. It can, in other words, we bank our hearts on Jesus. We bank all of our lives on Jesus. And the Lord shows us himself. And as that happens, we inherit eternal life. And then the simple man, therefore, becomes far more wiser in the ways of loving and treasuring Jesus Christ. And this is, this is the most infinite treasure we can have. And the, the highest, I think, wisdom we can have is to know and love Christ. And so the scriptures are sure. They're always relevant, pointing us to Jesus Christ. Now, the next one is, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So uh, character number three is the scriptures are right, pointing one to true joy. Pointing one to true joy. Uh, when we see the word precepts here, they're connoting authority. The Bible has authority. There is no greater authority than the scriptures um, for us, made available to us. And so Psalm, Psalm 16 talks to about, 16 11 talks about joy. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the word of God can rejoice our heart as we know the Lord more, and in effect has uh, a way to show us what is the, the, the highest form of joy that's made available to us, which is the scriptures point us to Jesus Christ. And so the word brings us true joy to our hearts because it points us to Christ. And so his authoritative precepts, um, as we read them, bring joy to our hearts because they show us who Christ is. And so uh, 
the scriptures are right, pointing us to true joy. Um, the next line is the commandments. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I'm going to put 8b and 9a together. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Pure and clean sound similar to me. And so they enlighten the eyes and they endure forever. So the scriptures are pure and clean, enabling one to see Jesus more clearly. Jesus Christ. So if they're, if they're enlightening your eyes, they're enlightening your eyes in a way that you can see something better. What is it that we see in the scriptures? We see Christ. So the fear of the Lord is clean. The scriptures are clean in that they, there is no deterioration. There's no infestation of impurities. They endure forever. And the Lord um, and his will will be treated as the anesthetic on the virus that's broken in. It's pure and clean, which is sin. And so the commandments um, to us are given to us. And Yahweh has given us his, his commandments. And he's requiring these things of his people. Now theologians will say the word is inerrant, which is a good word. And God just says pure and holy. They're pure and holy. They endure forever. They never go out of style. And so they also enlighten our eyes and they endure forever. And so since they're pure and holy and they enlighten our eyes, this means that the word, when it's given to us, uh, helps us be able to see Jesus better. We can understand who Christ is because the scriptures enlighten our eyes, which is what we want. As believers in Christ, every day we should want to grow more and more, and it's possible for you, to, to a never-ending degree to grow in your understanding of Jesus Christ because he's infinite. Um, and so the scriptures are doing this for us. They enlighten our eyes so that we can see and understand Christ more clearly. Number five, the fifth character is the scriptures are true and righteous. The scriptures are true and righteous. So, um, all together. Now, some theologians will say infallible, still good. But this just means true, dependable, unfailing, reliable, sound, fail-safe, trustworthy, steady, solid, sure, certain, perfect, flawless. This is the word. It's true. Ultimate truth is found in the scriptures of God. There's true and they're righteous. And this is um, massively important because we live in a culture that's always skeptical of truth. We're, uh, we're post-postmodern or where we are now. Everything's subjective. It's, it's my truth. It's not the truth. And so, um, which is wrong. It's, it's the truth. There's just truth. There's no my truth. There's no such thing. Um, and so this is huge because the scriptures are true. They're telling us that there's something that we can know for sure, and it's contained in this particular word. And it's not just true for you. It's either true or it's not. And so the Bible is absolute truth. And so truth is not relative. It's totally objective given to us in his word. And so here we have the, make, the word making a claim that it's altogether true and righteous altogether which means um, it's pure. It's, it's absolute, uh, absolute truth. So that's the fifth one. The tr- scriptures are true and righteous. Now, um, now that we've seen those things, we're going to move into, uh, well, we're still in, we're still in point, t- point two. We see the desirability. Now, so we've seen the character of his word. Now David is going to start talking about the desirability. It's just in verse 10 the desirability of his word. So he says, so since he says all, the, all this regarding about the character of God's word in verses seven through nine, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So the, the question I said before, if someone is going to say, you can have the Bible or infinite worth, you know, value of, of, of cash or whatever, but you can't have the Bible, we say, I want the Bible. 
I want the Bible all the time. David tells, tells us um, about, or Dale Ralph Davis says this, David wants to build up for us a total picture of Yahweh's true, reliable, soul-renewing, life-preserving, joy-inducing, energy-giving word that will hit, hit you like a ton of bricks and make you say something like verse 10. So the reason why he gave you seven, verses 7 through 9 to talk about how great the Bible is is so that when you see how great the Bible is, you'll say verse 10. More to be desired than anything else. Like I desire anything else. So verse nine, 7 through 9 is telling us what God's word is like. Then verse 10 is making us and goading us to say, well, then I should have it. I really want it. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. This word desired, interestingly enough there, is the word coveted, uh, which is usually has a negative meaning, but not here. Holy coveting regarding the, God, the word of God is good. It's like that's how, that's how, that's how deep the desire is to be able to say, I want the word. Uh, and he, there's a little illustration in Dale Ralph Davis's uh, book about someone that, that really loves the word of God. William Tyndale, this is what he says. Um, William Tyndale was at his best at this mo- moment. The man who had given England a Bible, if you know anything about Tyndale, he translated, he, he gave a lot of, uh, from the Hebrews and, and, and Greek, wrote a lot of the scriptures for us to be able to have. We, we have an English Bible mostly because of him. Uh, other people too. All right, so the man said, he said he was at his best. The man did over to the tender mercies of the church for eventual execution. For some time he was kept in prison in Vilvord, uh, a, a little north of Brussels, where he had braced himself to endure the winter months. S.M. Hutton tells us, that the 19th century researcher discovered a letter of Tyndale's in Belgian archives, a letter written to the governor of the prison, and this is what it, what it, what it says. This is, you know, the 1500s. I entreat your lordship and that by the Lord Jesus, if that I am to remain here in this prison during the winter, that you request the procurer to be kind enough to send me uh, my goods, which he has in my possession, a warmer cap, um, for I suffer extremely from the cold in the head, a warmer coat also, for which I, have, I am very thin, and also a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. I wish also his permission to have my lamp in the evening, for it's wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. And then he goes on to say this. A warmer cap, a warmer coat, a lamp at night, but above all, my Hebrew Bible, and they strangled and burned him in 1536. But that sacred average for God's word remained to the last. That love of the Bible, more than anything he wanted, was his word while he was in the scriptures. This is where David, an illustrative thing to help us see, to point us to more than anything else, I want my Bible. More than anything else. There's nothing in the world that, that will offer me better than be able to know the Lord through his word, the desirability of his word. Now, when we have the desirability in us, there is reward. So point C is the reward of his word. This is verse 11. Moreover, your servant is, reward, is warned, and in keeping them, in keeping them, there is great reward. There is great reward. Do you believe this? Do you believe that your servant's warned in the scriptures and then following the the law of the Lord, following what he tells us, that there's great reward. Do you really believe that there's great reward offered to us in the scriptures? Do you believe that being in the word daily, you'll be shown how to sin less and love Jesus more? 
Do you believe that there's great reward for living a life that reflects that you love Christ and you want to glorify him with every breath that you draw in your lungs? Every decision that you make, you want to give honor and glory to Jesus. Every act that you do, you want it to be to the glory of God. Do we believe this? And if we do, then we should begin making, um, resolving in our head every day, then for the rest of our life from this day point, or if you've already done it, that we say, that's, that's what I believe. And therefore, I am, there's great reward in having your word. And so I want to be consistent by every day being in your word, um, knowing Christ and following uh, his law. Uh, because I've been saved by Jesus, we've been given the ability to do that. You know, we have the Holy Spirit now. And so there is great reward, as he says in verse 11. More of them, there's, your servant is warned. And keeping that, it is great reward. Um, our lives are infinitely better as we follow the leading of the Spirit and obey him and, and do all the, th- the things that the Lord wants us to do, rather than not. And so there is great reward in that. Now, the conclusion comes here in verse 12. So this, uh, number three, your response. And so We'll read the whole response again. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent, my rock and my redeemer. Verses 12 through 14 were shown, I think, how we deal with sin in our life uh, when we love God. Now, the assumption is I think we do love the Lord and that we do delight in his ways, and we love his word, and we cherish his fellowship, and we want to stand in awe of his greatness. If you're a believer in Christ, we can all start with this assumption. But even that being the case, we still have ongoing sin. We still have ongoing sin, and we have to deal with it in a way that's gospel-centered. And I think this text will help us do do that. Um, As we learn how to discern our sin and repent of our sin continually. David clearly loves the Lord. Um, As he said, more than gold or the best food, he loves the Lord's word more than uh, all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. And he's talking about the word because they help him know Jesus better. And so uh, I think this scriptures, these last little four, three verses are going to help us point us to the gospel and understand how we can still uh, discern our errors and walk forward as we want to sin less and less and how we can think about it. So there's two ways that he's saying here that he sins. Um, Declare me innocent from hidden faults and keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So we have hidden faults and presumptuous sins. And these, these are different things. The first one, the hidden faults is more like a surprising because it's, you're unaware, uh, and it's mysterious because, you know, who can discern his errors? I can't understand the sinning. I, it's hard for me to get down to the bottom of why I'm doing this. I, I can't fathom why I self, deceive myself all the time. There's a way of sinning that baffles us that we don't understand. We look in the mirror and we say, I don't know who you are. Uh, it's because most of the time we don't know how sinful we are, right? Um, and so it's hidden faults. It doesn't mean that it's hidden from other people. It, it means usually that it's just hidden from ourselves. Other people can probably see it. If you're married, your spouse probably likely sees it. Um, But you normally don't see it. That's what he means by hidden, uh, is that I can't understand why this is happening. It's hidden from me. Uh, I don't feel the full sinfulness of it. I don't see my sin as it it is, at least for a little while. It's hidden from me. Um, And so you may have done it so long that you have just gotten used to it, and the Holy Spirit's conviction is just something that you've, you know, 
harden your conscience to. But that's the first kind of thing. And he's saying, I want to be pardoned from these kind of surprising hidden sins. And also from presumptuous sins. This is, I don't want to just be pardoned from those, but I want to uh, be preserved through these willful, deliberate sins. This presumptuous sins, these are willful, deliberate sins. There's this second way, not just hidden faults, but deliberate, where David sees a difference, where this also, some can su- sneak up on me and surprise me that I did it. But on the other hand, there are times where we have pride and insolence and we just outright sin and we know we are. We, we don't care. There's times where in our life where even as a believer, um, I'm going to do this because I want to. Uh, and so the point is that these presumptuous sins is not an extra special category of bad sins, but I think there is a special category of sinning not bad sins, but sinning, namely the arrogant defiance in the face of the, of the law of the Lord. Whenever we just like, I know, it, I know it's wrong, I'm just going to do it anyway. I mean, this, this is what he's talking about. And he says, not only help me discern my errors so that I, I don't know my hidden faults and declare me innocent, you know, pardon me from those, but keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let me do these sins where I just say, I don't care right now, I want to do it. I don't want to do those things anymore. And he goes, let them not have dominion over me. Let them not have dominion over me. Keep them back from me. So it's a prayer of acquittal from those first sins, but also a prayer for power not to commit the willful sins. A prayer for the power not to commit the willful sins. So in the first sense of the hidden sins, he's saying, God, forgive me of these sins that I don't even see and know. In the second sense, the Lord, the sins that I'm just willfully going to say yes to, give me the power not to do them anymore. When I do them, of course, assumedly, I want forgiveness. But he wants to actually have the power not to do them anymore. And so this is how he's pushing us to pray. That as long as we live, there will be sin in our life. Um, and it's necessary for us to think about how we want to be covered of our sin, but also have victory over the willful sins that that seem to dominate our lives sometimes. We can experience triumph over these willful, presumptuous sins, and that's given the only way that we can have any of this. When he says, keep them, uh, let them not have dominion over me, then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Um, All this is made available to us, this then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. That's because of Christ. So how does Psalm 19, I want to always make us help us understand, how does Psalm 19 point us to Jesus? Well, verse 14, David helps us see that, right? So, Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, and then what is it right there? My redeemer. So the fact that Christ is our redeemer, the one that forgives us of our sin, who forgives those uh, hidden faults, but also because he's redeemed us and forgiven us of all of our sin, fills us with the Spirit and gives us the power now to not walk into willful sin. And so how does it point us to Jesus? It points us to Jesus because he's our only redeemer. The whole uh, 12 through 14 is made available to you because of Jesus. Forgiveness of all your sins and because of the Holy Spirit, the power to walk away from willful sins. It means that sin that you think you can't get away from, they just, I'm just, I'm just gonna do it anyway. You don't have to. You don't have to make that volitional decision to say, I'm just going to do it anyway. God has given you the power of the Spirit for you to say, that is disgusting, and I hate it, and the Lord hates it, 
and he's totally displeased with the posture of my heart that he would want it. So Lord, fill me with the Spirit right now. Help me realize that you've actually forgiven me of all of my sin, even my hidden ones. And now, Lord, help me walk forward based on the gospel that you're my Redeemer, that you've already forgiven me of everything, that I don't have to walk in that. So Calvin says, David is asking more expressly to be fortified by the grace of God and able to live an upright and holy life. And this fortification is found in Christ only, in the good news of the gospel. And so we hear, verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, let the things that I say, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, what's actually going on in my heart, match each other. The words of my mouth are, I don't want to do this, but my heart could be feeling something else. And he's saying, I want them to be the same. I don't want to do this. Help my heart say, I don't want to do this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart match what's going on. And then he says, the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in the Lord's sight is because of Christ. And he's, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our redeemer is Jesus Christ. And he's the Lord of our lives because he lived the perfect life and died on the cross for us and resurrected, defeating Satan, sin, and death. All this now is made available to us. And he's our redeemer. I'll conclude with a very familiar hymn, the third verse of Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's 12 through 14. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy you've given to us. Help us see that the word that you've given to us is good and the word does the work in our lives. And Lord, that um, you made us a people that can trust in you. Help us be a people that trust you and cry out to you to make the word uh, more than anything, more than, more than uh, gold or honey from the drippings of the comb, that we want you, we want your word, we want to know you, we want to see your glory, we want to magnify your greatness. We want to be transformed more and more into our lives. We want our souls to be revived. We want to be conformed and restored into the image of Christ. Help us be satisfied with nothing else besides you. Anything the world is trying to offer us, Lord, help us not want it over you. Help us be in awe of your glory and tremble at the sound of your voice that we can see in the scriptures because the heavens and the earth and the skies are declaring your glory. Lord, help us um, each day stop and think on your greatness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.